You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. So I want to thank Savaram Rajakpolon for the quote of the year. She said that a dollar spent on lobbying appears to have a higher return than a dollar spent on R&D. Um, and I'm going to read you an excerpt, which is not normally what I do at the top of the show. But the Journal of General Medicine found a study of lobbying expenditures and new lobby registrations that the health sector represents nearly a fourth of all lobbying activity in Washington and across all industries and across all state capitals in the first quarter of this year. It's kind of like sharks to blood, sharks to chum, or bees to honey, if you prefer a milder metaphor, said the study author. And according to this analysis, the health sector lobby grew by 10%. The rest of the other sectors combined grew by less than 1%. And the number of new lobbyists, and this is the shocker for me, is that it nearly, well, it over doubled. So 100% would be doubling the number of lobbyists because of all this money floating around for pandemic, but it's really not 100%, it's 140%. One of the authors of this study is Dr. Jibai. She's not only a PhD, but she's a CPA, and she doesn't like job insecurity, so she teaches both at the John Hopkins Carey Business School, accounting, and the Health Policy and Management School at the Bloomberg School at John Hopkins for Public Health. So that is job security. She's an expert on healthcare, pricing policy and management, and she has testified before the Ways and Means Committee in DC, and she's written for the Wall Street Journal, and she's published her studies in all the leading academic journals. And if there is a uh, three-letter media, like ABC, CBS, CNN, she's been on all of them. You can't name any she has not been on. So she is uh, basically somebody you've never heard of and that you're going to hear a lot more of over the years. So, G, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ralph, for having me. Yeah, you're that quiet person in one of the windows that's talking about public policy when they're interviewing everybody about these issues, right? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, so let's talk about the intersection between accounting and health public policy. What an interesting intersection that is. Yeah, it's an empty space, if I may say. Most uh, economists are not in this field. They felt uh, healthcare is too complicated, and some men physicians feel the same way. Um, but on the other hand, if you look at the health policy researchers, most of them are not trained in the business discipline. So I was trained as an accountant, so I felt this is a very unique angle as a bean counter to go there, uh, count very messy beans. I got to tell you, I was really proud of my grades in school most of my career until I got into tax accounting, and it's the first course I almost failed in my life. It's uh, <laughs> that's that that is the dropout course. If you that's why everybody goes to finance majors when you're at the university is because accounting's too tough. Guess what? The more people dislike accounting, the better for our job market. <laughs> our skills more marketable. 
So, so let's talk about where these, these intersect. You have written a ton about pricing in hospitals and the lack of transparency. Are you pretty excited about this new executive order and do you think it's gonna be uh, a game changer? Yes, I do. Especially if we have other changes in benefit design that will together with the transparency regulation to give uh, individuals more choices and promote more competition. It's, it's actually the precise opposite is what we have today. We don't have a lot of choices. The vast majority of plans have one option, maybe two options, right? It's not a, uh, there aren't a lot of choices if you're a consumer right now working at an employer. Exactly. But I think that, uh, cons that transparency rule is partially targeted to self-insured employers so that self-insured employers can use the information to build their own networks, sometimes can be narrow, so that we can exclude uh, aggressively priced providers. And the reason this is important is self-insured employers represent a third of Americans. So it's about 80 million people that are in that universe. Um, so it's not, we're not talking about a small number here, it's a uh, gigantic population. Exactly. And the money paid to support the health insurance premium come from both the workers and from employers. In general, employers pay a bigger portion than the workers. So there's every incentive for employers to save money for themselves and also for their workers. Well, and we've done, we've looked at studies and had guests in the past. There's a huge functional uninsurance problem in America, meaning People can afford maybe the $400 or $500 a month average premium, but they can't afford the co-pays or the deductibles or the co-insurance. So they're trapped in a plan they really can't even go see the doctor and use. That's exactly right. So we have not only a high premium problem, we have a deductible problem. And then that will, you know, we have heard many people go bankruptcy and hospitals go after individuals, sometimes you know, individuals with a very um, low income um, for a gigantic bill, medical bills, and then eventually you know, go to court and, and you know, seek their salary. We have seen many cases like that. Yeah, the University of Virginia, until they were outed by the media, um, were chasing down with liens on people's estates. So if somebody died, they might not know from 1990 a hospital bill that was a lien against the estate and it had interest that built up. And so the inheritance was less. Now UVA got shamed out of it. Their public mission states, it's got the word of God in it. It's got, you know, doing the right by individuals in their mission and value statements. So they are slowly piece by piece removing these liens. But um, even John Hopkins, where you worked at, has pursued the poor and they've had to reverse that because of the uh, public light. Exactly. And the public like has helped a lot. I want to just clarify one thing. It is totally legitimate for a business, any business, including hospitals, to get the bills paid. However, here we're talking about hospitals, nonprofit hospitals pursuing patients who are in many cases within a eligibility threshold will, should, will and should receive charity care support. Think about nonprofit hospitals. These hospitals are exempted from income tax, property tax, and all kinds of taxes in most states. They have a liability or obligation to help patients, especially hardworking Americans who are struggling to not fall into the welfare trap. That is their 
obligation, but many hospitals are doing the exactly the opposite, pushing these patients to the brink. I'm not sure the boards of directors know, G, that this is going on. I think this might be overzealous CFO or overzealous revenue collection uh, consultants. I, 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 don't, I don't think hospitals are inherently evil, the nonprofits. I think these are ways to get their returns higher or get their reserves higher or it's some financial term that I don't think fits in the mission that I'm, I'm certain that the leadership knew about it would denigrate or, or stop doing these policies. Do you think that's, I don't know, that's just a theory. What do you think about that? I think that it depends on each individual hospital situation. Sometimes we see hospitals with a very similar practice as a for-profit entity, very profit-driven, aggressive, expanding market share, squeezing every cent from consumers. Well, in that case, I would say those hospitals are not different from for-profit entities. Then you cannot have free lunch, right? You cannot have both ways. You should either pay tax or stop those aggressive bidding practice. And most troubling is that many of these hospitals are enjoying very high profitability. They have money. It's not like they're struggling financially. They're going to close. They have money, but they're trying very hard to squeeze more from the, as I said, hardworking Americans who are struggling financially. That is the truth. Um, we have been looking into the financials of the top 20. Um, the top 20 had strategic reserves of $120 billion. They got $105 billion in CARES Act funds. So, and, and if you look at their last three quarterly profits for the for-profits, we don't see what the nonprofits are reporting until the end of the year. Um, they're all making money. They're, none of them are doing poorly. They're all year over year doing better than they did last year. That's exactly right. And many hospitals are seeing our profit dropped. But remember, that's only a reduction in profit. Most of them are still enjoying the net income in red, meaning that they are making money. So the hospitals have been enjoying high profitability, especially after the ACA. We have seen increasing profitability across the country in general, not, not necessarily for you know, each individual hospital, but if you look at hospitals as a population uh, of study, then they have been enjoying higher and higher profitability ever since the passage of the ACA. So they are in a m more stable financial situation. However, we have seen more aggressive debt collection pricing practices. So those two things are very puzzling coming together. What of all the studies you've done has been the most troubling or disturbing uh, conclusions that you've reached from your analysis? I think the most recent one, the lobbying, this may be because it's most recent. Um, it, it really tells us a story that those regulatory process in many cases is not coming from a purely people-oriented perspective. Right, we have a term called regulatory capture. When everybody believes that the best way to address healthcare is hospital, is through the government, I think we tend to forget that it might be the case that the government are creating problems. For example, if we have, let's look at the relief bill. We have $175 billion act, CARES Act relief bill. That is a, a significant amount, but the government is in charge of allocating it. Then if you are a company, if you want to get more, your, your first reaction would be, you know, how can I lobby? How can I create 
create some connection or use my old connection in order to influence the policymakers to create some kind of formula that will benefit me. Right, and then this become an investment decision for you. It's not about right or wrong, it's just about a pure cold business calculation. You are going to focus on investing in lobbying or government relationships in order to have the rule in favor to you. But what you actually should do is to compete, focus all your effort on competing on the market in order to produce better service, better products to please every consumer. That's what you need to do. So I think when, once we, we rely too much on government, then the shift of the individual companies will be more and more on the government side. They will do more and more lobbying. They will, they will try all kinds of other, other things in order to influence the policymaking process. Then eventually, our people are not necessarily benefiting from it. Yes, the Senate Minority Leader called this the, the Marshall Plan of 2020 and um, aptly named because if you trace back inflation adjusted, this is actually more dollars than the real Marshall Plan in the 1950s that gave us world peace, trading partners, alliances with Japan and Germany and our former enemies became important allies. Um, this, this CARES Act really got us nothing. We gave it to companies that had profits throughout the last three quarters, that had reserves adequate to handle this, that had um, nothing in return. We got literally nothing in return from this Marshall Plan that we got versus world peace, <laughs> the last one. It's almost comical if it wasn't so sad. That's so well said. And this is inevitable because the most politically connected and the most powerful players will have an uh, upper hand. And eventually the process becomes inevitably uh, regressive. It's amazing. The, the little guys don't have a chance in the lobbying game, no, no chance. It's, um, so that you're talking about independent PCPs and smaller in, uh, employers, but I, I gotta take my hat off and give a hat tip to HCA. They did return $6 billion of the 175 uh, because they, I guess, got shamed into it and didn't need it. I mean, they are a public company, they're for-profit, not non-profit. But wouldn't that be a nice gesture if the hospitals came forward and did the same thing HCA did by leadership? Wouldn't that be nice? Yes. Yes, exactly. Remember, if you get government money, there are strings attached, explicitly or implicitly. Actually, I was quite pleased when I, see, uh, when I saw that news. Well, you know, the hospitals have already done a lot before the relief funds came. So we have looked at the financial disclosure, quarterly disclosure from the largest for-profit hospital chains. They have been already voluntarily stopped paying cash dividends, voluntarily stopped mergers and acquisition to preserve cash, to prepare for the upcoming pandemic. The market and individual corporations already have a way to deal with the situation. It is not just, it's not clear how government can efficiently help uh, and efficiently allocate the funds um, and fairly to everyone. Well, let's talk about those strings attached because it now gets into your accounting background. Um, the strings that I saw attached to the CARES Act were mostly accounting functionary. They, you know, you, you have to do certain kinds of reporting and you have to be highly specific about how you're using the funds and why you got the funds. But I didn't see anything that said you've got to be doing anything for the consumer. There's nothing in it for the doctors. There's nothing in it for the employers. Exactly. So you, you see the, the strings are selected 
in a way that is not benefiting consumers. I'm totally with you. That is a huge loophole and the, the handicap in the, in the law. All right, well, I have another study for you to consider, and maybe you've already studied this, but the AICPA, I believe, is changing the rules for hospitals, nonprofits, to report how they're writing off their, uh, their charges, meaning um, what they're doing currently is they're writing off at full charge master retail price. Charge master means the 100% price that they offer, but the, they don't get charge master. They get, they get half charge master, a third charge master, but they're writing it off at full charge master pricing, even though that's not what they're, they're getting two times Medicare in a sense, in essence. The other thing that they're doing is if they build a beautiful waterfall, there's a hospital in Houston that built a gorgeous waterfall on the side of a garage. And because it's public art, they wrote it off as a public service. So if they build, buy beautiful art in their lobbies or build sculptures or build gorgeous buildings that are architecturally award-winning, they get to write this stuff off. But they, I, think, I think the AICPA is changing the rules on that. Do you know anything about that? No, I'm not familiar with this. So they can no longer write it off? Well, I think that's the rules change they're working on is they're going to more highly specifically target these kind of ridiculous gamification of the uh, accounting rules. That's great. I think the taxation rules should also have more discretion on those things. So what would that look like? If it's a for-profit, if it's a for-profit, so we, we might be able to argue that those things should not be tax deductible. Okay. Is, is that necessary, ordinary necessary business expenses? Yeah. Do they really extend the public welfare? You know, the problem is now hospitals have been fattened by the ACA. They have a lot of money. If you have more money, think about individual finance. My paycheck gets uh, more amount, then I'm more likely to spend more, right? So the hospitals are doing the same. I have more money, I'm going to spend it. So in order to control spending, you, we, we have, there's no way if we keep allowing hospitals to, to obtain um, aggressive revenue in a sometimes in a very questionable way. On the spend side, it looks like hospitals were laying off people and furloughing, even though they had federal money not to do so. I guess the federal money did not have targets associated with, with keeping good people on board and not furloughing and not laying off. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that is a string yeah, attached with the government money. But laying off in, in general, uh, you know, if we see a company is cutting labor force, then the stock market would go up because that's really a good news indicating more efficient operation. So during pandemic, many, you know, many of my friends couldn't understand why hospitals still laying off. You know, it's, it's really a hard decision, but they sometimes had to control their spending in order to preserve cash flow. And my issue is if after the pandemic, once everything came back normal, I think the temporary furlough or temporary layoff should, should you know, be, be reversed. And we have seen some cases. So hopefully the labor force impact and the local employment impact will be temporary. So I'm going to imagine your analysis and your studies that you do are kind of like books on most people's side tables before they go to bed. You, have, you probably have about 10 different studies going on right now. What are you most excited about studying right now? Yeah, thank you. I'm most excited about an upcoming charity care study. So we look at the hospitals across the country of different ownership, uh, different characteristics. Then we are going to make a conclusion whether they perform up to the public expectation or not.
I'm wondering, um, have you ever studied whether hospitals that are run by physicians are run better or more efficiently or more operationally sound than those that are run by executives? Mm, we did not uh, examine that, but in general, physician-owned hospitals are better run than government or nonprofit hospitals. That's in general true. So are you talking about in terms of returns? Are you talking about lower infection rates, higher outcomes? What are you talking about? Mm, financially. So I haven't studied a lot regarding the clinical outcome. So here I'm talking about more, more nimble, more financially uh, adaptive operations. So some, you know, we see the physician-owned hospital usually you know, sometimes not, not huge, but, but they are providing efficient service and they are doing a great job with the routine, routine care. So if you have a very rare disease or complicated uh, need, then you will go to a large hospitals. But in general, your know, physician-owned hospital very efficient in treating routine, um, uh, low complexity cases, and they are doing very well. Okay, so my most important question is, you are teaching at two different colleges at John Hopkins. Are you having to run sometimes from one class to another class with like your tennis shoes on? <laughs> That's a great question. Luckily, I do not. Um, I haven't uh, done that because my teaching for the business school is p only in DC campus. So we have a DC campus in Dupont Circle and then they, they mentoring other activities in Bloomberg's in Baltimore. So I have to go there in car. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, thank you for all you're doing and keep it up. Uh, the good work, the good analysis. It's uh, great to read what you're doing. And um, how do people find you if they want to contact GBI? please email me at gbai at ghu.edu. Okay, we'll put that on the links. And then also, if you could fly a banner over America on an airplane, what would that banner say? Healthcare is liberty. We either go to the freedom, the, the road of freedom, or road to serve them through healthcare. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, thank you for your time, G. We'll do this again. This was very interesting, and you're a very good spokesman for, uh, for these analysis. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ron, for having me. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.